Nicholas. I am so excited to be with you again at the Apologetics.com radio program. My name is Lenny Esposito, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour. Here at Apologetics.com, we pride ourselves in teaching thinkers to believe and teaching believers to think. And that's kind of part of the idea that I'd like to express and and really uncover in this next hour. I hope that you'll uh, join me in this discussion. I'm alone in the studio tonight. I'm uh, filling in for, uh, I think, John's uh, show this evening. But that's okay. I think there's a a lot of uh, things that we can discuss. I'm normally here with Harry and Jacob. I believe that'll be next week. But this week, Maybe it's just an intimate conversation between you and me. Maybe we talk about some things that have been on my heart, on my mind, um, and maybe on your heart as well. And really, a lot of it has to do with kind of the state of our culture, the state of our, our world today, how things have changed so radically. And that's what I want to get into. But I don't want to necessarily have this be a monologue all the time, I'd love for you to join me. Now, you can call in at any time. We have some great folks standing by. You call in uh, by just dialing 888-995-KKLA. That's 888-995-5552. And that'll get you in, and uh, we can start you know, discussing these issues. Now, what is this all about? Well, in in thinking about our world today, it's, it's, <laughs> there's a lot to think about. There are a lot of things going on. There's a lot of different topics, a lot of different crises. Of course, we've got uh, a presidential election on top of a coronavirus pandemic and lockdowns and economic turmoil and racial strife and unrest uh, and the worrisomeness of the emergence of the nuns, with especially within the Christian community, and all of these things happening, and it's gotten a lot of people scratching their heads. What's, like I said, what's going on? Uh, how do we understand these things? How did we get to where we are today? Have you wondered that? You know, what, what turns did we make? What happened to bring us to a point where... Everything feels out of place, uh, especially if you're, you know, an older individual. Uh, this, this very, the whole kind of culture seems to be upended and and upside down. Uh, matter of fact, there was a, a gentleman, Samuel D. James, who uh, has a blog at lettersandliturgy.com, and his blog is billed as, quote, the Christian Reviews of Ideas and Culture. He actually is a book editor, does things like that. He tweets from time to time. And he, uh, I had a friend send me a series of tweets that he said that he sent out. And this kind of got me thinking along this line. So this is, this is how I'd like to open the show, is to uh, kind of read you these thoughts that he has, but then explore them a little bit more. And see what you think and see what you feel uh, are the rubs, so to speak, or the um, issues that this concept brings to mind. So 
Samuel D. James writes, quote, There's a version of millennial Gen Z evangelicalism whose essence is a posture of generosity and grace towards people who walk away from Jesus. And we've seen this. We've seen a lot of folks, uh, even worship leaders or uh, contemporary Christian artists, uh, key names and figures in ministry who've walked away from Jesus. And he says, you know, we've seen that there's a version of millennial, Gen Z evangelicalism, whose essence is a posture of generosity and grace towards people who walk away from Jesus while withholding generosity and grace from the people who imperfectly parented, pastored, discipled them. These evangelicals stand athwart the, quote, God and country, conservative religion that dehumanizes minorities and immigrants, while simultaneously talking about their family and their youth pastors just as hatefully as any MAGA Twitter troll. For all the correct discussion of how Fox News addiction in the church is evidence of a massive failure of spiritual formation among boomers, I would submit that the resentment is likewise evidence of a failure to reckon with the gospel among emerging adults. And by the way, he concludes, just like how some things are labeled liberal, I'm sorry, he says, just like how some things that are labeled liberal are really just Christian, some things that are labeled trauma are really just resentments. Now, that's, that's an interesting point of view. Um, there's a lot of pieces to this. So he's saying that there's, there's a group of folks who identify as evangelical, who've come up in the church, who see people leaving the faith, and they don't castigate folks for leaving the faith. They understand them. They want to reach out to them. They want to be generous. They want to be graceful. That, that's completely fine. But he says those same people in being graceful to the individual who, and if you're still an evangelical, someone who leaves the faith, you think you're making a serious mistake, right? You're thinking that an individual who leaves the faith is risking his immortal soul because he's not holding to those essences, that those beliefs that lead to salvation. But you give grace to that individual. At the same time, though, they withhold that generosity and grace from those people of the older generation who pastored them, who parented them, who discipled them, perhaps not perfectly. Perhaps they made mistakes. Perhaps they, um, and it seems to Mr. James' point of view that he sees one of the mistakes is mixing politics and religion and equating republicanism with Christianity or conservatism with Christianity or whatever the case may be. He uses the term MAGA, right? Make America Great Again, Trumpism. Uh, and he also points to Fox News, right? The discussion of how Fox News addiction in the church is evidence of a massive failure of spiritual formation. Now, but he's basically saying if you can give grace and generosity to a person who's making a error, a spiritual error, 
on the level of losing one's faith, then certainly we can do so for someone who hasn't lost their faith, but maybe is not practicing their faith in the way that you would see it to be practiced. We don't, you know, hold our vial for individuals because they've equated their political stances with their religious stances uh, while saying uh, those who have fallen out of the faith, who have apostatized, uh, they're okay. And, and we, can, we can give grace to them. He, he thinks that's a little bit backwards. And he says that sometimes uh, things that are labeled trauma, you, they've put trauma on me for these rules, for these ways that they've um, maybe done youth ministry, maybe enforced, uh, you know, the, the purity movement. I'm, I'm not quite sure all of what he's pointing to. He doesn't explain that. But the point here being is, is he says sometimes those traumas aren't really traumas, they're just resentments in the same way that some things that are labeled, you know, by the elder generation liberal, they're really just Christian um, mores. Now, this is an interesting point of view. Mr. James is, is uh, probably one who falls in the millennial range. He's got two young children. I don't know his exact age. Um, but I think that there's a lot going on here and there's a lot of things there's it's difficult for many people to rise above the cultural milieu in which they've grown in which they've come up in and what i see with a lot of folks even in this short paragraph is there is a there's a little bit of a cultural or, or a generational bias that's being expressed here that's not necessarily clear. I'm not saying that he doesn't have a legitimate point, because I think he does. I think there is some concern. There's a lot of concern about how we're starting to blend Christianity and politics, and those two things— um, while one should inform the other, your Christianity should always inform your politics. Uh, your politics shouldn't inform your Christianity. And sometimes I think we get that backwards. Uh, but one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up as my starting point is because it touches on so many of these issues that I said in the opening we're starting to see over and over again. You know, what are the problems that we see in our culture today? Well, if we just look to the larger culture, to the secular culture, we can name them pretty easily, right? You have political division, and that's pretty clear. Again, we're in a presidential election year. Uh, we're nominating a new Supreme Court justice. Uh, our government is in the throes of that. Uh, and uh, it's I don't have to convince you that um, we have been more polarized as a society at any point since, say, the last 150 years. We are definitely uh, in opposite camps. It seems that there is no large, mushy middle anymore. Everybody's on one side or the other. So we have a significant political division within our nation. Um, 
we seem to be more um, well we, we, we I see more venom I should say uh, against people who don't hold the views of one another you you see more spite in comments as as people engage one another online uh as the, you aren't just an individual who disagrees or who has an erroneous view you know you're a fascist or you're a you know whatever the a libtard or your whatever the the epithet you wish to attach to an individual um to basically dehumanize them i mean that's the that's the point of those kinds of things is to uh remove the humanity of the individual who you disagree with and um basically caricature them put them in a box so that you can dismiss them and we're seeing this over and over again more and more frequently uh, of course we have the whole cancel culture that has developed from some of this uh and and that's another whole section that we need to understand in our culture we have the whole social justice issue and wokeism which actually is a problem if you uh explore critical theory and critical race theory and i've started to really dig into these you'll find that uh they are massively inconsistent in their own philosophy. So a good way to tell whether a worldview is reasonable, is rational or not, is to see whether it is internally consistent. And uh, really, I found uh, critical race theory specifically, but critical theory generally, to be basically self-refuting. It tends to uh, cut itself out from its own, under its own feet. Uh, that's that's a problem, but we see this demand for being woke, and and it leads to these ideas of cancel culture that you can just dismiss an individual, that you can somehow um, helping minorities is basically being racist against white people, and I know that they say that you can't be racist if you're in white because it's all about power. Uh, again, there, there's a lot of problems with that that we're seeing, but 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 the whole social justice movement has caused untold uh, waves, and it's affected. It used to be in the 1990s. You would see this uh, maybe in the you know the far reaches of the far corners of the university where the gender studies programs were, or the um, what they call the grievance studies sections. Uh, And then uh, that somehow exploded immediately where we not only see it uh, across campuses, I mean, it's infected the universities completely, but it's also infected corporate America. And it's infected our sports, right? The NBA. Uh, And over and over again, we're starting to see not just demands for equality, but demands for equity, which is a different piece. So we have all of these. And then we have the over-influence of even social media, I think, in all of this. And um, that becomes an issue because I tell a lot of folks, it, 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 it strikes me that uh, commenting on social media, being on social media, it's a lot like driving by yourself in a car. There's something about being alone in a car that makes people think that those windows that surround them are one-way mirrors 
why would people pick their nose just because they're alone in a car? That doesn't make sense to me. I mean, people can see in as well as you can see out. And it seems to me that that's what social media has has fostered in our society today. People say the worst things thinking that they're alone in their bedroom or, or on their uh, phone or, you know, and nobody sees them, but your name is there. So these are some of the problems that we see in secular culture. But I think we see some of the same problems in evangelical culture. And this is why I, I want to bring this up. Do we look at the church through a political lens and are we dividing politically even in the church? Um, do we dismiss others? We have some issues definitely in the church specifically with theological ignorance. People don't know what they believe or what is the essentials to the faith. What are those things that make Christianity Christian? Uh, we have, in general, an intellectual feebleness, I think, in the church. And we're not doing ourselves any favors uh, by trying to dumb down our Sunday morning message. And this happens over and over again. Again, things I want to talk about. And then, of course, we do have the issue of young people leaving the faith, the rise of the nuns, the idea that uh, you can simply give, do church the way you've always done church and not have to you know, do anything more, and everybody will always come. That's not working anymore. So we see these problems showing up. Now, how, do we, how did we get here? How do we solve them? Well, I'd like to talk about that. First, we'll take a caller. I have Brent on the line from Riverside. Let me put you on. Oh. Hello, Brent. You're on the air. Hi, Lenny. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Absolutely. So what do you think about the uh, Samuel James, and what do you think about these ideas in our culture uh, that are starting to be expressed? Is this something that's unique to the millennial generation? Is it something that's pervasive throughout the church? And uh, how does it affect Christianity? I, I love the question. I think uh, particularly uh, um, in American Christianity or or specifically evangelical, uh, which Samuel is uh, referring to. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he pointed out the generational differences, and it's, uh, it's concerning that for somebody like me, who's back from the Jesus Movement era a long time ago, I, uh, I found what Samuel said there a little jarring, and it made me realize I'm not necessarily seeing things the same way that, the, that millennial or younger generation, uh, people that are of my children's generation, uh, see things. And though we as Christians, of course, will say that, well, the Bible is the Bible, uh, the things that are said are the things that, that are true, no matter what generation or who, uh, I think our, we are culturally different enough that it, um, it, it, it is a stumbling block for us um, in our communication between the generations. And that was kind of an eye-opener for me uh, than, uh, than uh, thinking about that. I appreciate you reading that. Uh, in particular, that, um, that we all have blind sides yeah. in which we uh, evaluate uh, someone else and, uh, as you said, our biases. And it sort of prevents us from, um, from communicating effectively. And part of that is we just don't necessarily understand 
uh, the reason that somebody comes to the conclusions they do. We, we feel that we do, but perhaps we don't. Yes, and and it and it takes a lot of work, and sometimes those differences I'm finding are deeper than we even realize. So here's a here's a good example. I like your I like your uh, feedback on it. I I read these stats, or I read this assertion, and I wanted to try it out. So I asked my sons. My sons at home. I I have one son who's 24, and I asked him this question. I said, "What are the milestones?" What are the key aspects? What are the things that make one an adult? And I don't mean, you know, legally at 18. I'm saying, I'm saying, what are the things that if you were to look at one guy, you say, well, you know, he's never really grown up or this guy, he's really got it all together. He's, he's an adult. What are those things? And the article I read said, uh, even here, you have a distinct difference between the generations. In the boomers and prior, uh, most people understood the coming of adulthood with basically three things. It was marriage. It was uh, getting a job on your own, right, paying your own bills, and uh, starting a family. Uh, those, those kinds of things, living on your own, getting a job, Starting a family, those were the markers, the milestones that showed that you were an adult. The younger generation doesn't see it in that way. They, they saw it emotionally. It was, it was being self-assured, understanding who you are. It was very much driven by uh, one's self-reflection and self-understanding. It wasn't external in those ways. And that's how they viewed adulthood, was being self-confident. The other stuff they took for granted. Oh yeah, everybody can do that, right? You can. We can all get a job. We can all get a house. Uh, they weren't even thinking that that was an issue. So, so even here, what makes an adult an adult? You know, we we would have two competing concepts. Coming back home to mom and dad, that's no big deal because that doesn't even affect my adulthood. As long as I feel secure, as long as I'm confident in my decision making, that's what makes me an adult. And it's fascinating to see even there the generational gap. So, yes, uh, I think it's fascinating. I think what you uh, uh, one of the things you pointed out is uh, we hear the term and uh, the younger generation of uh, identity. Yeah, uh, very often um, um, my identity. And so what we have seen, of course, in the church, uh, the phrase "my identity is in Christ." My identity is to be found in the Lord, not in what I do, or my identity is not in uh, what I belong to, or uh, uh, even though that is, I think that statement is recognizing that identity is, for most people, uh, who you belong to, uh, uh, and so on. We, of course, uh, again, generationally, uh, right. we thought that identity was also supplemented by uh, how well you did uh, financially, uh, social status. Um, yeah. I, I don't know that that's the same thing today. No, um, yeah. It's, it's thought-provoking for me, and, and I appreciate how you uh, said that it was, uh, how you just described it uh, for uh, the younger generation, current generation, uh, and your son. I think that's fascinating because I think that's that's kind of world-shaking. Yeah, it, how, and how and again, it was, well, again, if you think the, the older generation understood themselves more as a, as a member of a larger community, and it's the community that kind of brought the value to the individual 
And that's turned on its head today. It's the individual today that has uh, the the value in the eyes of many people. It's 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 what I make of my life. You know, you don't it, you don't get a job to put food on the table. Although they would say, yeah, you need that. You get a job. You want to look for a fulfilling job. It's all about fulfillment. So that's a that's a a good piece. Okay. Well, thank you so much for calling, Brent. And if you have anything more to say, I'd love for you to call back. Uh, I appreciate what you what you've contributed. Thank you so much, Larry. Right. Appreciate it. Sure. All right, we're going to our next caller, Kevin in L.A. And Kevin, I've got two minutes for you, so uh, I'd love to hear your comment. Hi. Um, well, what I have to say may be a tad bit longer than two minutes, uh, but um, I, I will say that um, I did like your overview of. Um, you know, your, the, the topics in terms of how you paint it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the cell of two cities uh, or the two uh, realms of thought. Um, I think I would possibly disagree with um, you just a tad bit, if it's possible, if it's okay. Uh, meaning that I think that um, a lot of people have maybe a preconceived uh, idea or notion about how they believe uh, society should run, mm-hmm. but when you see, um, you know, the vast inequities in society, not necessarily meaning that everyone, everything is going to be uh, equal, but at the same time, there is a, uh, there is um, some things going on in society that I don't believe that the current church is even addressing. You know, right. and it's okay. and it's like a shock and awe to some when they watch TV. I can't believe yeah. this is going on. I can't believe that's going on. But um, they're not really seeing uh, what uh, a lot of the millennials are going through or, you know, with right. society. Because sometimes people can live in a detached uh, situation, you know. And um, so, and I think... That so, as Christians, we may believe a particular way, um, but in terms of our application as it applies to the rest of the society, uh, that may be a different uh, take. Yeah. So you know, so when you see, you know, like you know, things that are going on, you know, in society. Um, you, you know, like, you know, with the George Floyd situation or the Breonna Taylor situation and, and people's right. reactions, you know, to that, it's like, you know, this is like, wow, you know. And the fact that some Christian believers don't even apply empathy to other or, or even to society yeah. that or, or to the individuals that have passed away, you yeah. know, because people are hurt. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so, so Kevin, I I'm up against a, a break, but I do want to uh, continue this conversation. Can you hold on until after the break, and then we'll we'll yes, talk sir. some more. Okay. Why don't you hold on for a second, and we'll take a break, and then come back and and discuss this. Thank you. Definitely. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Everyone has ideas about God. Unfortunately, many people hold false ideas about him. 
And these ideas have consequences. Some false ideas have led people to worship a God of their own making, while others have led people to reject God altogether. This year, we've devoted an entire conference to answering the most common false ideas about God. Is God anti-gay? Is God good? Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? These are just a few of the topics we'll be addressing. The only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. We're at war. It's not a war of bombs and bayonets. It's not a war against flesh and blood. In fact, it's not a physical war at all. It's a spiritual war. That's why Paul instructs us to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil's primary scheme is deception. He wants us to believe false ideas about God. And the only way to guard against false ideas is to fill our minds with true ideas. Simply put, we combat deception with truth. It's unfathomable to imagine sending young men and women off to fight a physical war without proper training. Yet, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we do this all the time. The vast majority of our students are simply not prepared for the spiritual battle that awaits them. At this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences, we're training students to counter the lies of the enemy. Lies like God does not exist, God is anti-gay, Muslims and Christians worship the same God are just a few of the false ideas we'll be addressing. So join me and a number of other speakers at one of this year's Rethink Apologetic Student Conferences. Find out more information about Rethink by going to RethinkApologetics.com. That's RethinkApologetics.com. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Okay, good morning, everyone. My name is Lenny Esposito. I'm your host this morning for the Apologetics.com radio show where we teach thinkers to believe and believers to think. And we're doing that right now with some uh, interesting discussion about what I'm calling modern culture and the conceit of affluence. And I'm going to get to that idea in just a minute. Uh, Right now, we have uh, Kevin on the line. I was speaking with Kevin, who brought up some issues. And I think think they're important enough that I did want to uh, talk a little bit about them, Kevin. First of all, I I really want to emphasize that in my opening, one of the things I wasn't trying to do was to say that the millennials are getting this wrong and maybe the boomers are getting this right. I don't believe that for a fact. I think that there are biases on both sides of this issue. I do think that, um, as you had mentioned, that there are definitely 
issues that the church has been negligent in addressing. You know, they still say that the most segregated hour in America is the Sunday morning 10 to 11 o'clock hour where everybody is at church because everybody goes to their separate churches and you don't see or engage with folks who may not look quite like you or think quite like you. And, uh, you know, that is a definite concern. We don't engage with folks who um, are truly hurt. I just, matter of fact, in my uh, on my YouTube channel, I just released a video on Christianity, race, and human dignity, where I explain things like, uh, for example, driving while black, how that is a very common occurrence. And we just don't think about that in white churches. And it's, and it's a travesty because it's something that's even affecting, you know, our Christian brothers. We need to engage those things. We need to understand how they feel and touch on that. You should be able to grieve with individuals who are grieving because their black brothers and sisters are being killed. Whether or not the circumstances warranted it, or you think they warranted it, or whatever the case may be, it is still a travesty that human life is lost. And we need to step up and recognize that first and foremost. I understand how a mother could feel fear for her sons because she knows every day they she sends them to walk to school. The color of their skin may dictate A, someone's bias against them, accusing them of something, or B, the neighborhood they live in means that they either have to learn how to fight in order to protect themselves, um, work twice as hard to not be pulled into a gang, you know, not uh, see themselves as hopeless and helpless, uh, destined to be just like everybody else on the block, whatever the case may be. All of those are real issues that we've not addressed. And uh, as I said, you know, just because those boomers in previous generations have seen themselves as part of the community and therefore they identify that way, that doesn't necessarily mean that the that identity is all they need to do. We need to see ourselves as uh, part of the body of Christ, and that includes people of color or includes people who are poorer than us. And and you're right, we haven't done that. So I did want to, I did just want to clear that up, that what I'm talking about here, you know, this bias goes both ways. And again, it's very, very difficult for most people to understand even maybe what their biases are because you've you've grown up in it, right? Fish don't know that they're wet, so to speak. It's just the nature of their experience. And so that's what I'm hoping to uh, clarify, but I do want to understand how culture has has so radically changed and and caused a lot of confusion in here as well. Does Does that make sense for you? Absolutely, and like I said, you do a very good job of uh, illustrating uh, through your, um, uh, you know, choice words and summation of uh, underscoring kind of what's going on. So I do appreciate that, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, a person just pointing the finger and, uh, yeah. 
possibly do not understand. See, a lot of times people want to be understood right. before they've actually taken the time to truly understand. And um, so you have a whole generation of people that right now are coming up that are hurt. They are, I mean, when you uh, see, you know, the direction just of the country, uh, even with the president, you know, making certain statements and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that uh, vilifies one group and uh, makes another group feel a certain way, you know, it's, it's, it's really painful. So when you see the reaction of how the electorate is possibly going even in this direction, I think a question should be asked is, uh, how, you know, is the church missing it? I, I mean, the, the church yeah. is missing it uh, just within the church, but then, uh, you know, just politically, uh, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you know, um, how are you going to reach out to the next generation? Because right. uh, for this uh, people that listen to this broadcast, I'm sure, are primarily, you know, Republicans. And if they were to lose the election, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot of finger pointing and everything. But I think, moreover, people need to understand, like, what are you doing to reach? Because a lot of times people can preach to each other. Yes. Yeah. But they're not they're echo chamber. reaching out yes, to, exactly. to, to other people. Yeah, so, it, um, it, you know, it's just a you know, a, a thought. And, so, um, but just, well, I, I think, you know, you, you did a good job in, you know, giving a well, good submission of things. Th- thank you for that. And I am going to actually, I, I hopefully near the end of the program, I will address how we should reach out to the next generation. Uh, so I, I hope you'll stay tuned for that. So thank you so much for your comments, Kevin. I appreciate sure. uh, uh, your call. All right. Thank you, and I thank you for taking it. Sure. Have a good morning. And I'm enjoying your show. All right. Thank okay. you. Good. Sure. Bye-bye. All right. So if you'd like to join us and you have something you'd like to add, please give us a call, uh, 995-5552. That's 888-995-KKLA. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was a statement that Douglas Murray made when we talk about how do we get here? How did, how did this shift happen in terms of uh, understanding and worldview and things like that, because we are talking about a different worldview. Most of the secular society holds not merely a non-Christian worldview, but they've lost the worldview that was prevalent for many centuries in Western civilization in general. And uh, through the Enlightenment, through the modern age, things like that. And... Um, I think Douglas Murray, uh, the author who wrote uh, 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 Madness, uh, I think he put his his uh, finger on it. And this is a, a quote I want to – The Madness of Crowds was his book. And uh, he said – he didn't say this in his book. He said this in an interview. But I think he, he said something that's very interesting. And he specifically was speaking about American individuals. He says, in America – Quote, there are a lot of people who believe Western civilization is something like the color that paint is until you add color. That is, it's a totally nondescript, natural state to which everything else gets added in. These are people who have grown up in America in the late 20th, early 21st century. And 
They think that America in the late 20th, early 21st century is the natural order of things. And then you can add all these colors. And they have no idea, he says, because they've never been anywhere else. And they've never studied history. They have no idea that America in the late 20th and early 21st century, that America is unimaginably rare in human history and in the world today. And that's a key piece. Again, when we talk about biases, when we grow up, and this is why I've titled our show tonight, that modern culture and the conceit of affluence. We don't realize how rich we are, how different our life experience is today, as opposed to not merely in any other point in history where it's radically different, but even in other countries that Western civilization doesn't have a foothold or doesn't have a history. It is radically different. And it is a 21st century America that really informs the rest of the world. I mean, there are lawsuits happening about speech codes in Canada that would never happen here because of our Bill of Rights, for example. But there are a significant group of people Maybe significance, not a good word. Maybe they're a small group of people, but a very vocal, very visible group of people who assume that we can always do better, right? And this is, again, critical theory, especially critical race theory, offers this. We need to do better. We need to replace what we have today because it's, it's tainted systemically. It's corrupted systemically with something better. My question there is, such as what? Give me one other instance in all of human history where things have been better for any individual than they are in the United States today. This is what I mean when I say we've forgotten our history. Johan Norberg, Swedish writer, wrote a book called Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. And he lists 10 different ways we are better off than we were even 200 years ago. And he's talk, not talking about 200 years ago in Siam or in you know an African um, jungle someplace. He's talking about, he's comparing us to things like his ancestors in Sweden, which was Europe in the... Uh, 18th century in the late 1700s was the powerhouse of the of the world, right? Um, that's where all the business was. That's where the most affluence was. And <clears throat> he offers some of these points. So, for example, food is one of his points. And he says, at the end of the 18th century, ordinary French families had to spend about half their income on grains alone. That for, for eating. He said often this meant gruel. This is what you ate. Morning and night, you ate gruel. The French and the English in the 18th century received fewer calories than the current average in sub-Saharan Africa today, which is the region most tormented by undernourishment. Amazing. And that's one of the things that we miss. We don't even understand that. He goes on to write that many people couldn't work 
enough hours to harvest large crops of food because they couldn't take in enough calories to keep them energized for the workload. And so it became perpetual. Plus, you'd have famines, you'd have droughts, you'd have uh, things that would cause havoc on the crops, and uh, that would cause a a whole cycle of uh, starvation, ugly things. And we're just talking about 1820. You know, we're not talking about a long, long time ago. We're talking about something that uh, is at the after the American Revolution. Another point he makes is life expectancy. And uh, life expectancy in the 20th century has just simply exploded. Before the 20th century, it hovered around 30 as an average. Now, that meant that um, babies would die. doesn't mean that everybody died at 30. It meant that you had some people who lived to 60, but you had a lot of people who died as a child or as a uh, young adult, things like that. Um, Here's a good example. Uh, John Adams, uh, our second president, had six children. Now, a lot of folks had large families back then. Why would you do that? Well, because only four of those six survived to adulthood. So two of them died either as in one of them died at one year old, another one died as a child. Uh, Of the four who survived to adulthood, one son, Charles, lived to 30, and he died even while Adams was sitting as president. But John Adams even outlived his daughter, Nabby, who died of breast cancer when she was 48. So here again, life expectancy was not... I mean, 30 years old is not very long, right? Um, Charles dies at 30. uh, Nabby dies at 48. And part of the problem was sanitation, the the difficulty of having sustainable, clean water. Uh, Also, uh, infectious diseases that they didn't know how to deal with. Uh, He, Norberg writes, all large towns regularly suffered from the plague, an infectious disease caused by bacteria course, that is spread by the air and physical contact and was carried on by fleas and rats. Now, we understand, we remember the plague from the 13th century, right? The Black Death. That was the worst one. But that kept on showing up over and over again in many towns all the way through the 18th century. And that's one of the other reasons why the life expectancy is down. If you lived in a large city, chances are you'd see a pandemic or an I should say, an epidemic within those cities at some point in time. Imagine living through COVID, you know, once every 10 years. I mean, that's was normal in that point of time. Uh, another point he m- makes is poverty. Uh, according to rough estimates by the economist Angus Madison, the gross domestic product per capita, that's the value of goods and services per person, Increased by only 50% between the year one, the year that, you know, one CE and 1820. 50% in almost 2,000 years, in 1,800 years. That's not enough for people to experience any increase in wealth during their own lifetimes. Europe was a little more privileged than other continents, but in 1820, the gross domestic product per capita in the richest countries of Western Europe was the equivalent of around $1,500 to $2,000 when you're looking at 1990 money. That's not a lot of money. That's less than the present-day Mozambique and Pakistan pull in. Now, even if all the incomes across the globe at that time had been perfectly equally distributed— 
and of course they weren't, uh, it would have meant a life of extreme deprivation for everybody. And this is what I mean when I say we don't, we don't realize how good we have it, that people in the wealthiest countries on the earth in 1820 were still living hand-to-mouth, dying by 30, um, not guaranteed three meals a day by any stretch of the imagination. And if you got to eat, you were probably eating the same gruel, you know, boiled grain, uh, and at least glad to have something to fill your stomach. We forget that. Uh, we have an over-reliance, I think, on our, tra- on our technology. We assume that we can tackle everything because of the amazing achievements that we've uh, achieved already. You know, we've come up with vaccines for polio and smallpox. And, and a lot of people assume that that's what's going to continue. Well, what if COVID, what if the vaccine for COVID just happens for, you know, just works for this strain and next year it mutates to the point of where you need to get a second vaccine for the next one. And it keeps showing up and we have to keep figuring out how to deal with the new mutations. This is why we have a flu shot every year because flu is a coronavirus and it changes enough that we have to try to thwart it. And you can only thwart so much of it. You can't inoculate against all flu. You, you take your best guess and you hopefully that you, uh, you're hopeful that you get it. But to assume that we're going to just do it is, is simply a wrong uh, move. So um, I, I've got a couple of other things. I think we take shortcuts on life. Uh, you know, we, we uh, Google our answers, right? We don't allow people to struggle uh, and, and work through their failures uh, by sheltering them from pain. We've sheltered them from uh, learning how to deal with pain. We've sheltered them from the fact that life for most people across the nation, uh, the world, is pain with brief periods of respite, as opposed to um, deep, long periods of basically happiness or or contentment with brief bouts of discomfort. And lastly, we've abandoned our faith, and leaving God, of course, doesn't make us irreligious. It simply opens us up to expressing our need for transcendence in some other way. And one of the ways that people do that is they identify politically as opposed to identifying spiritually. And that's a, that's a big component in wokeness. Um, we see, uh, and Andrew Sullivan writes, a generation of nuns can feel bereft of transcendence and meaning. And becoming woke, like being born again, fills that spiritual hole. In an atomized and lonely age, feeling if you are, quote, on the right side of history, banishing doubt, joining with countless others of your fellow converts in marches and seminars, you can abate the isolation and emptiness of it all. Many moderns want the experience of religion without God. With critical race theory, as in the past with communism, they can have it. And that's, again, what we see. Even uh, many Christian kids, Christopher Smith uh, was a gentleman who... uh, wrote a book called Soul Searching, and he surveyed many, many young people. Uh, What he found is that the belief that most young people have today isn't the God of the Bible. It's more what he calls moral therapeutic deism. What is moral therapeutic deism? Well, deism was a belief that God kind of wound up the world and let it go on its own. And uh, 
that's what they think. They think they think that there's a sense of morality out there that God should be good, God should be just, but he also should be therapeutic, which means that if I'm in trouble, if I have needs, God should meet my needs. And you see where that places the emphasis. It doesn't place the emphasis on God. It places the emphasis on oneself and one's feelings. So that's part of the problem. Uh, how do we overcome that? You know, a part of the complaint here maybe especially with parents or teachers going back to my original quote from uh, James where they're complaining about those people who've done so imperfectly part of the complaint may be that you've made me feel uncomfortable you've made me feel uncomfortable well think back to maybe some of your best experiences with teachers or bosses a lot of times it was those individuals where you first confronted them, or they first confronted you, I should say, and uh, made you do things, work hard, uh, perform tasks that you didn't want to do, but because you were in the job, in the classroom, uh, drafted into the army, whatever the case may be, uh, you had to accomplish those things. And at the end of it, you find that it made you a better person and you appreciated the individual so much more for basically hardening you, stealing you, and, and, and developing you as an individual. Well, in a spiritual realm, can that happen when you're the one who is shopping for the church, who's looking for um, churches that, quote, resonate with me, right, that, that, are, that satisfy me emotionally? If you're starting off looking for emotional satisfaction as opposed to looking for truth, then you may not hear the hard truths that you need to hear. So that can be a problem as well. So what do we do with all this? And I'm, I'm running out of time. I, I have, you know, you, you plan these things and you figure, okay, I'll be able to fill the hour. And, and of course, the hour goes by faster than you want to. Um, how, do we, how do we make headway? How do we reach some of these folks and break through the biases on both sides? Well, the first thing that I think we need to do uh, is not argue that our politics are right or our you know, position is right. One of the first things that we need to model is our thankfulness. If you're thankful, it does many things. First of all, it, it humbles a person to be thankful. You have to be humbled because thankfulness means that you don't deserve it and you recognize it. That it's not the way things should be or, or normally are, but maybe... It's something that's a blessing. It allows them to see themselves as blessed and have privileged in living in the society that we live in. As you express your thankfulness, you know, talk to somebody who's an immigrant from a poor third world nation or, or, or has suffered in those ways and hear them when they're thankful. You can't, you can't turn away from that. So I think we need to model thankfulness because Thankfulness will penetrate these ideas, these assumptions of everything is normal uh, more deeply than uh, any argument may. I think we need to model what true relationships are and know that social media is not a true relationship. It is a pseudo-relationship. It is a faux-relationship. What do real relationships look like? It means standing by the person even when you disagree with them, doing the things that you don't want to necessarily do, having them 
there so you can cry on their shoulder, so they can scream at you. That's what real relationship is. We need to model thoughtfulness. I didn't even get into the idea of how we con- um, combat intellectual feebleness. I think that's important. And lastly, we need to model the love of Christ, as uh, we talked about earlier. A love goes a long way in changing people's minds, especially when inevitably those hard times do come. Well, there's so much more to say. Uh, I can't believe the hours flung by. Glad to have been here with you. I hope you have a good Saturday morning and come back again next week. We'll have more to talk about. God bless. We'll be right back.